This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to I'm Absolutely Fine, the podcast from the mid-alt that looks at all the glamour and indignity of being a grown-up. Hello, everybody. Uh, now, I apologise in advance because I'm about to say a rude word. Pension. <laughs> maybe you're super organised, or maybe, like me and Annabelle, you're immobilised by chronic pension panic. Oh, and here's another rude word. Paperwork. I mean, can you bear to rifle through the drawer of dread and dig out all those old documents that you never even read at the time? Which leads us to denial. If I don't think about it, then I don't have to deal with it. But the panic is still there, growing with each passing year. Which is why we are delighted that this podcast is brought to you by Pension B, a leading online pension provider that enables savers to be pension confident by helping them transfer their old pensions into one new online plan. Now for a nice word, simplicity. With Pension B, it's all streamlined, so you don't have to crawl through 500 complicated options. Download the app or head to pensionb.com for more information. That's pensionb.com. Pension planning without the pain. Capital may be at risk. Hi, everyone. I'm Emily, and I'm absolutely fine, but this weekend... We made croissants. Now, this might seem like a kind of small thing and not an absolutely fine, but it is indicative of our mental state currently that we did not want to go to the shop to go and buy them, so we did not want to leave the house. We were willingly locking ourselves to a kind of baking process that takes basically 24 hours in order to, <laughs> in order to kind of slake our thirst. But it was more the fact that we had to fold and chill and then leave for an hour, fold and chill, leave for an hour. So it basically inhibited any kind of any activity other than that. So you were basically using butter as a buffer <laughs> between you and the rest of the world. Yeah, exactly. Thoroughly approving this. Exactly. And the result were croissants that, and Annabelle and I were discussing them this morning, they were basically like, if you'd gone to the supermarket and got one, you would have been like, oh, here's a shit croissant that I'm going to eat. But because we'd made them, they felt like triumphs. Triumphs. Yes. But they also, I think I'm going to keep this up. It's like, oh, let's make croissants will probably become our mantra for let's not speak to anyone, leave and just be permanently tied yes, to the fridge like, and the butter. How are you? Are you making croissants at the moment? <laughs> exactly. Which means... I'm entering a croissant period. Yes, exactly. And, uh, and I also feel like we'll never get better than the first croissants. Do you know what I mean? Like, oh, I don't, you're going to be chasing the high. I think we'll be chasing the high forever because I, I don't think that we'll suddenly turn into sort of... Patisserie you know, chefs. Yes, exactly. So we'll just be permanently making shit croissants. So there we go. That was me. Um, how are you, Annabelle? 
Thanks, Em. I'm Annabelle and I'm absolutely fine. But when I was pregnant, I developed pigmentation, just little dots of pigmentation freckles on one hand, only my right hand. And I, you know, I was rather fond of them because they were sort of a memory of a time. And in the last couple of weeks, they've suddenly gone bright brown and gone from being freckles to bona fide liver spots. And the French call these, um, these little patterns on the back of your hand flowers on the path to the grave. <laughs> which is incredibly French of them. So now, every time I look at my hand, I feel the pinch of mortality. Oh, God. And we're all there a little bit at the moment. I don't think anyone was prepared for the idea that 2022 might be worse than all the rest put together. But here we are. So as we're all feeling terrible, and terrible about feeling terrible, we are thrilled and a little relieved to welcome Julia Samuel back to the podcast. Now, Julia is a psychotherapist and best-selling author whose warmth and wisdom has helped thousands of people. She has spent decades on grief's front line as a bereavement counsellor for the NHS, and she is the founder of GriefWorks, a therapy app which offers 24-7 support to bereaved people. Her latest book, Every Family Has a Story, is out on the 17th of March and is an examination built around a series of compelling case studies into how families work or don't work. Yes, families. Buckle up, guys. But first, Julia, how are you? Lovely to be with you both again. And Emily, I was thinking maybe you could, for yourself, fold and chill. So, <laughs> so that the croissant is the metaphor that you're needing to learn from. Oh, my goodness. I've, I've had one of those chilling moments of small. she says, continuing on the croissant theme. Exactly. I do need to fold and chill. I've got this terrible habit, Julia, sorry, I'm interrupting your absolutely of doing stretchy yoga in the mornings while listening to the Today programme, which is just like an insane, I know. I shouted at her this morning, she said, you can't do yoga and listen to the devastating news. At the same time, she said, well, I want to do yoga and I want to listen to the news and I don't have time to do both. What's the solution? <laughs> Julia's just shaking her head, listeners. In despair. You've actually stumped Julia Samuel with your dysfunction. Okay. Because the news no one knew is that contagious. It you, is contagious. It Anyways. transmits negative emotions. So I am absolutely fine. And I have been wrestling with the guilt of actually being fine. That I feel well. I wake up in my warm house. I have food on my table. I am not under threat. I am preoccupied with work, with promoting my book, with getting my book into the hands of readers and then this kind of profound feeling of guilt like how can I be wrestling with my life when there's so much distress violence and war happening in the world and then I kind of go to my understanding is that as Elizabeth Kubler-Ross the kind of great icon of grief said that guilt is the most painful companion of grief and it's horrible bedfellow shame. And that my understanding with people who are grieving, and I think we're all in a place of collective grief compounded by this devastating war, is that feeling, you know, we are social animals and guilt is there for us to be socially connected. And only as sociopaths, as people we can think of, don't have guilt but not to conflate the feeling of guilt with the fact of guilt, but to use it as a motivator to generate warmth, connection, 
you know, the strongest medicine is love. So using it to reach out and do and connect with other people. So now when we're all, and Emily and I, very, we've been talking about share your experience of almost walking around the house going, why am I the one who's got clean water? I can't believe I'm warm enough. I, you know, I, you know and, and I'm not trying to dog gunfire and, and escape to an unfamiliar place and all these terrible, terrible things that are going on. So the way to, to manage that is, is part of it, do you think, to connect with the people that you love, to emphasise, to lean into those connections and to tell people how you're feeling? I think naming what you're feeling, well, being aware of it to begin with rather than just acting it out and kind of bending in a kind of contracted position of suffering where you don't you can't even name what's going on but recognizing that underneath that the awareness that is guilt and then naming it to people that you trust and who you love and they love you and then that releases you know emotions are transmitters of information so once you kind of release them and and voice them and tell them to someone else it's a bridge then to a different feeling and then what you can do with the guilt. And it may be give a donation to Save the Children, to UNICEF. It may be helping your neighbour around the corner. It may be, you know, some act of kindness or love within your family as well. Because Edith Eager, who is a sort of Holocaust survivor, what she said is there isn't a hierarchy of pain and that everybody suffers. So it isn't about being out-pained by someone else, but to acknowledge your pain, but also... We are social connecting beings and that we need to connect with others. And I'm sure, I, I, you know, in, in all the years you've been practising, I suppose you've never seen anything like a, a two-year-long pandemic of isolation and grief and death and bankruptcy and, and, and mental ill health. And then this directly on the tail and, and then you're potentially World War Three because on top of guilt, there's also panic, isn't there? Well, there's also panic and the economic crisis of prices going up when we already so depleted and worn out from the two years of the pandemic. And also, I think the the kind of devastation that we did have a little inkling of hope that as we were stepping out of post-pandemic world and not wearing masks, that maybe we could have a spring and have fun and dance and snog and flirt and do all the things as human beings we should do and we are wired to do and then we got kind of blasted by this horrendous war and it's a different kind of uncertainty so you know before the uncertainty was our own health uncertainty and what did it really mean and what was going to happen to the people we loved and our family and when bad news happens we always go to ourselves first. Like, what does it mean for me personally? Because that is our survival mechanism. But then I think we go to our imagination and we imagine all sorts of, as you talked about, World War Three or catastrophic scenarios. And that in ways why we have an imagination, why we're sentient human beings is to protect us. But also it can really make what's already bad much worse when we let ourselves go down all of those what-if paths. It's interesting thinking about how we talk to young people about what's going on, and to your point just now, and I think you were saying it, and lots of people have been forwarding things about how to talk to children about it, and just to say, you know, tell the truth, not in its all its sort of brutal colours and everything, but tell the truth because what our imagination makes up is so much worse 
So what we leave them with if we don't say the truth is worse. And you just think, oh my goodness, at what point could you say, okay, this is what's happening. And is there anything worse than that? Oh, But I think what matters is, well, first, you can't any longer. I mean, when I was a child, I didn't even look at a newspaper. I had no idea of what was going on in the world. But now with social media, even if you're not telling your children their school friends are, you know, at very young ages, so that we can't protect them from what's going on. So we have to support them given what's going on is terrible. And that we can tell them the truth of what we know for now. I don't think we have to haunt them with what our fears are. No. And when you don't know stuff, which we don't know what it's going to mean or what is going to happen, you acknowledge what you don't know. But also support them to both feel fearful and acknowledge and name that, you know, face the dark. But then as a family, turn yourself to hope, to, to, the, to the light. And that what can we do as a family, given what is, happened to, is happening in the world and what's happened to us in the past two years, what can we do as the key people in our lives to support ourselves not to fragment under the strength, uh, uh, under the devastation of this, but to build our resilience in the adversity of it. Because, you know, in my book, Every Family Has a Story, one of the big messages is that all families operate on a spectrum of dysfunction and function, depending on what's happening to them internally and externally. And at the moment, there's a pinch point of our internal fears and the external events. So families couldn't matter more now than ever because how we respond, how we are as a family will predict our outcome. I think one of the nice things about your brilliant book is that the feeling that every time a family comes to see you, it's an act of optimism. It's turning towards hope. It's turning towards the light. So as you read, a, as you begin to read each case study, you know that they're a group of people wanting to feel better, which is a really optimistic way to start each chapter, isn't it? Yeah, no, I completely agree. And actually, you know, I mean, I loved your book. And one of the things that I, that I took from it is that we can do a lot of work by ourselves and we can do a lot of work, you know, unpacking a lot of the hurt, but actually there are moments where we need the whole because if you are just the only person in the kind of tidal wave or the, or the sort of vortex of your family or whatever who's trying to make it, it will be very difficult. Well, we were t- we've been talking recently, Emily and I, and, and, and we've, we've done a couple of riffs on, you know, what being an adult is. And one of it was being an adult is realising that half your family is mentally ill. <laughs> and then what do you do about it, to your point, Emily? Yeah, exactly. Annabelle makes a joke about you're single-handedly trying to change it because you're going to Battling generations ha- <laughs> of trauma. And it sort of is a joke, but this book proves that it, it isn't a joke. It's really happening. So what if you're a grown-up who's struggling and, and, um, and you've done as much work as you feel you can on your own? What questions do you think you should start with in terms of asking your family of origin about themselves and about what has been happening? I mean, I think the first place to start is to recognise that what you're feeling is normal and that what you're feeling probably didn't start with you. But to look up and to look at the generations before you. Because what we know from the research, both behaviourally and epigenetically, so what gets transferred in the womb, 
is the traumas, the losses, the devastations of previous generations and how we come to terms with them or how we deal with them gets passed down from generation to generation. And those that weren't prepared to feel the pain, that keeps getting on passed down until someone is prepared to feel the pain. You know, so I worked in the book with three and four and sometimes five generations of a family. And that by hearing each other and each telling their stories, rather than having, as you say, your singular story of I'm not coping, you have a collective story with many more pieces of the jigsaw and you learn about how come you are who you are and you make sense of it much more. So it's much more, oh my goodness, you know, my grandfather had this experience and that's how I come to feel like this and my mum, how she came to feel like that. And so now I can begin to make sense of it. And once you can begin to make sense of it, you can choose much more what your response is. And then you don't pass down the trauma and the pain to the next generation because you have kind of understood yourself better and so your responses will be different. But I like that the subtitle of your book is How We Inherit Love and Loss because it's like there's the smooth and the rough. So perhaps in doing that investigation into transgenerational trauma or whatever it might be or addiction that you might be looking at and seeking answers about you also will be diving deeper into the love completely and that you know one of the premises for all of us is that at any given time as parents we are all doing our best you know no one wants to fuck up their own lives or their children's lives but often it's ignorance that blocks us being able to kind of have a, a version of ourselves that is actually more supportive to ourselves and our families. And by having all of these different stories, it kind of informs us and gives us more information from which to, to make choices. You know, so one of the, the stories that I'm thinking about is the Rossi family. So they were an Italian family well, she was English, but her husband was Italian, and he died by suicide 40 years before. And the kind of subtext of that is that trauma lives alive and on alert and has no sense of time in our bodies until we take the distress of the trauma out of our amygdala, which is the sort of neural fight, flight or freeze part of the brain, the kind of alarm system. And that that family was still the mum and her three children, and the people around them, actually the family around them, still had that trauma alive in their body 40 years later. It's like the long arm of trauma. And by having the conversations with me, the three daughters and their mum, and we only had like six or seven sessions, so this is less than a Netflix series, if you see what I mean. They had conversations they had never, ever had before because it's very hard to have those conversations on your own. Also, families have the kind of conversations that they have, don't they? You know, we're all pattern makers and habit formers. Yeah, I mean, most of the conversations, well, certainly that I had in my childhood and I think most families have, are about everything that doesn't matter and nothing that really matters because we don't know how the hell to talk about it. But with a facilitator like me who is unbiased but very supportive... You can dare to say the things like one of their daughters said to her mum, but mum, 
I am fed up with you losing it all the time. You're too fragile. We have to walk on eggshells. And this mum, who is the one left looking after her children, who kind of gives her husband a good reputation, is like, what? You you can't criticise me. I've done such a good job. I enabled us to survive and I had to bear the brunt of it. But actually by hearing that they needed to say to her, you did things to us that are injurious to us and that she could take it and that they could then actually talk about their dad and not just protecting that he had a mental illness, but actually he messed up their lives big time and that they were angry with him. And then they had a very reparative, very, I thought, very moving letter that they wrote to him that made me cry when they, when they read it out to me over the screen. Um, so it completely changed their relationship with their story and each other and their mum. And she'd ne- she, at the, one of the last sessions, she said to them, I never asked you how it was for you, children. Because as parents, it's so unbearable to see our children suffer. We kind of don't want to know. We kind of want to turn away. Our instinct is to turn away. But by being able to ask them what they suffered and hearing it, it released it. And that was curative. I mean, we, we talk a lot, don't we? This really unhelpful word, I think, that invades family dynamics is, is the idea of blame. So, you know, where parents think, well, don't blame me, or a child thinking, I blame them. And in fact, when you put it like that about the Rossi family, you realise it isn't blame, it's answers, it's logic, it's reasons. But blame is the thing that we're all kind of scared of. Well, blame is like a truncheon that you're bashing somebody on the head with, that they intentionally did stuff to hurt you and that you're injured from it. And then the person that's been truncheoned has nowhere to go. It's like, if you're blaming me, what can I do? Say sorry isn't enough. But it's much more building trust that we can bear together these things that are often unbearable when we can hear each other. Yeah, what I was going to say, you know, hearing and also in some ways forgiving, acknowledging that people are doing the best with what they, what they have. And I mean, I think it's a, it's a very difficult thing in families because you get the sense that, you know, well, you should have been there. You should have known how to protect me. And, you know, when one is talking to, to one's children and, and one says, well, I don't know. And, and, and I, I always worry about that, saying I don't know, you know, even when I don't know, because I feel like I should know everything because I should be able to protect them. Well, of course, I can't. But, you know, I can see, you know, generations past, particularly, where they thought, well, the best way to protect is not to tell and not to tell about anything and not allow, for example, you know, children to go to funerals and things like that. You know, it was very much forget the idea that on. what you don't know isn't going to hurt you isn't going to hurt you exactly and kind of you know so it's all whispers in corridors or whatever and you and it is again to what we were saying about how terrifying that is as a child but also um, but also I mean to interrupt you which yeah. as a therapist that is verboten um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm totally thrilled for to be interrupted is that listening to the wisdom of children so the, there were two case studies the Taylors and the Brown and Francis family where the children and young people were the calibrator of change. That when we listened to them, they changed what had been a very stuck narrative, Mm. you know, which is more about blame or just this stuckness that we feel, which blocks the binds of connection and kind of freedom and expansion as a family because we kind of white knuckle it. 
But yeah. when we can open up to it, it releases us and it, it can be incredibly empowering. And children have a lot of wisdom yeah. when we listen to them. Well, because at core, they are the ones absorbing everything. So they can see it in a way through a sort of... They're, they're seeing it for the first time. Exactly. So they have that idea. I know, and I loved that family that you talked about with Ashley and the way that he that the way to access him was turning off the screen and just the little tiny thing where he didn't have to look at his parents, but he could then... The Zoom screen. So this yeah. is, these are, sorry, just for listening, these are sessions over Zoom and a teenager who found that he could function the session by not being physically seen. Exactly. So, he, and therefore so the to... first, so the Taylor, this, this family, so they were a family that had separated 10 years before and they both came, I mean, particularly the mum, came from a very dysfunctional, lots of addiction, very little support family. And so they hadn't had a good basis to form a relationship and have kids together. And they didn't have the support that they needed. And they split up and they had a lot of money problems. You know, so there was a poverty of time. There was a poverty of actual money. And she was left carrying a lot of the weight of that and the alwaysness of parenting and the kind of the mother kind of thing of it's always done to me and you're fine. And so she was resentful and burning with fury. And Ashley, when he first came on the screen, he was still... Because all of my sessions, all of this book was written during lockdown. He came on the screen. He was literally down here on the screen. <laughs> so you could only just see his face and his, and his T-shirt and his tracksuit. And then when they were talking, he'd go like... He'd put his really? It's like the despair... And then when he got too much of him, he just turned off the screen. But then it was like being behind a wall where he could listen. He could see them, but we didn't see him. But he could understand the parents talking. And he made a kind of key requirement is that, Dad, I want to see you on my own, not just with my stepmother. And this, this thing that in step families of these um, binds of loyalty, that you could be torn as the child of, you know, if you're loyal to your mum, being nice to your stepmother is contravening the loyalty to your mum. So you get torn in these bands of loyalty, loyalty bands. And they, you know, they, they made a lot of resolutions. It was incredibly powerful. Difficult for people who have a, a, a very difficult parent who is, you know, maybe getting older and is showing no signs of getting less difficult and doesn't really want to have the conversation. How would you advise someone to handle that? Is it better to, to leave that person alone or to keep pushing or to keep working by yourself if they don't really want to be a part of a recovery process? So, I mean, I think there's a, like with all things on kind of function and dysfunction, there's a spectrum. So Craig, who is the last um, case study, he had a brain tumour and he was dying. He's still actually alive, which is amazing. But... It was too threatening to actually his well-being and his life to have a relationship with his extremely dysfunctional mother. So he, he cut relationship with them. And that was the only decision he could make. But I, my kind of frame is that be, you know, often nobody, the generation before you, isn't up for change and isn't up for the conversations, although more are than you would guess I mean it was surprising to me how many people said yes because in the end their investment in their children and their grandchildren is probably the most important thing in their life as they face their old age and their death but when they aren't up for change I would 
kind of be realistic about the quality of the relationship that you can have and the time that you spend. So don't immerse yourself and go and spend a whole weekend with your very dysfunctional parent because you're going to come out broken. But to go down and spend a few hours so that you have a connection because the thing about having no connection at all is the assailants of guilt and remorse when they die. So that, you know, match the quality of the relationship with the time that you feel that your psychological robustness can manage. Um, I think on the whole, it's better not to severe bonds. But sometimes it is necessary. But yes, also uh, to remember, you can never cut from your family. They're in us. Mm. They're in us genetically. They're in our memories. They're part of us. So in the same ways our parents believed you could cut and move on, you can't cut and move on from your family. So it's better to have the best relationship you can have, given that is what it is. I would do it. And sometimes you just can't. You know, I've had some clients whose their parents are just out and out, impossible to you know to help like when they're really aging they won't get a carer they won't go to the doctor they you know all of that kind of thing is so difficult the other thing that Emily and I were were saying that we that we loved about the book was that it shows you that it's possible therapeutically to do different pieces of work so you may not have to sit I think people sometimes think about therapy and they think they'll be sitting in a room with the same therapist talking about their childhood for the next 40 years and that, in fact, you can take, you can get some help on something that you're struggling with. You could then go back in with your father or your sister or your stepchildren, whatever it might be. Look at what's happening around that. That you that it's a that it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a solace and a place where solutions can be found. That's always there for you. But you can you can move in and out of it completely. And like the Wynn family, so Ivo was from a very privileged family, and he eventually, although he'd been kind of in his mind for a long time, he eventually found out that genetically, um, biologically, his father wasn't his father, which more and more people are finding out now because of me in 23, which didn't exist, you know. I mean, I've had a lot of people, you know, their siblings have done it and then it's kind of emerged that they aren't biologically, don't have the same parents. And he, you know, he did not want to sort his whole life out and the dysfunctional mother who is an alcoholic and all of that. But he did want to sort out the loss he felt that his biological father wasn't his father and that experience there. And he didn't want to mess up his own kids. So we had, I think it was like five sessions. You know, I saw him on his own. I saw him with his mother and his sister, which was quite a session. And she was this sort of very grand grand dame and she kind of walked out of the session. Having said... Um, the one line was, and I can't remember who the name of his real father was, but so-and-so was your father. Yeah. Um, and that the sister knew. Sorry and the to sister it away. knew. I was just, it was a real, it's a real moment, you know, Then there's it? betrayal, everything. One of the oh. things I loved about, there are a couple of things I, I loved that, that happened with, with your interaction with, with Ivo. And one was his description of when you're feeling desperate about something, whether you're feeling grief-stricken, betrayed, he said, it leaks into every corner of my being, leaving no centimetre of space for any other feeling, particularly not love or connection. And that's what it does, doesn't it? It isolates us. It sits us on an island of shame and distress. And if anyone listening is feeling overcome, what's the first step? Well, just to describe what that is physiologically, which I'm sure your listeners sort of know because everyone's talking about it, is that 
when you're really suffering, your whole body goes on to code red alert in fight, flight or freeze. And so your cortisol levels are very high and your neurofrontal, neofrontal cortex, which is the sort of connection, safety, love, oxytocin part of the brain, is completely offline. So it's like you have this armour which blocks you from connection with yourself and blocks you from connection to others because all you are wired to do is fight or flee or kind of freeze. And you get into this awful ruminating whirring of ah, and sort of screaming inside. So the thing that you want to do is what I call circuit breakers, things that stop you getting into the fourth gear and bring you down to lower gears so that you can feel safe in your body, feel safe in your home, in your kitchen, around your table and actually receive a hug or ask for help. Because when you're on high alert like that, you don't ask for help because it's like only I can survive. You know, there's that wonderful African proverb. Um, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go long, go together. And that we need other people. So the thing I tell people to do is a combination of like, get outside, move your body. That, that tells your body you flow. It like drops the cortisol levels, just that even for 10 minutes. Do something intentionally soothing. You can do a breathing exercise for five minutes, make yourself a cup of tea. Things that you are in your toolkit that imbue you with the sense of safety. So mine is running, breathing and a cup of tea. <laughs> you know, then I, uh, for somebody else, it might be lighting a candle, it might be putting flowers on their kitchen table. Because then it, it expands my receptors that I can then say to someone, oh God, I'm so upset or furious or scared. And I can hear their response. Because when I'm in the fight or fright, what they say is I just, I kick it off. It's like, oh, nothing works. And then you, and that also you can get into a terrible cycle of that. So you need the circuit breakers. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yes. As long as they're not hate sex and a bottle of tequila. <laughs> <laughs> you say to, yes, we, anyway. Um, sex sex one can work, by the way, and it can double down on the self-hate. So it depends how you, the intention with which you do it. Okay. You you use a technique with Ivo in your book, two techniques, the safe place and the container, which I thought was was fascinating. So that comes from EMDR. So I'm now trained as an EMDR therapist, eye movement desensitization reprocessing. And that's the best evidenced treatment for trauma. Um and so the safe place is a is a tapping your left and right. That you for the container you tap them as well where you kind of imagine a place that is with you as an adult on your own that is that gives you a sense of safety some people imagine a, a beach or a hill some people actually a lot of people imagine their bed their bedroom looking out of the window and then i get them to kind of be aware of what they can feel what they can hear what they can smell where they feel a sense of safety in their body and then tap that in and by the right and left brain, it connects the left brain, which is the cortisol, to the right brain, which is the cognitive wisdom. And so it allows you to connect the two through the, the, the um, tapping. 
And the container is locking your demons away in a steel box, isn't it? Yeah. Where they can't hurt you for now. Putting the lid down, locking it away and then tapping it. Why did you write the book? What do, what, what do you hope people will take from this book? Because every single person that has walked through my door over the last 30 years, for whatever reason they've come for, has spent great tracks of time talking about their family of origin or the family that they're making. And that families really matter. You know, they are the bedrock of our lives and can support us when they work good enough through great adversity. And they are the most important influence on a child's life and their outcome. You know, we learn all our relational stuff in our family, through our family, how to work, all our habits. You know, we learn by observing the adults around us, not by what they tell us. So (laughs) everything that we kind of come to understand, we get from our family. And then it's the work of our life, if you like, (laughs) to include the things that work for us and to discard or adapt the things that don't work for us. And one of the things, you know, I think a lot of parents, there's so much pressure on parenting, perfectionist parenting, competing parenting. It's sort of gone the other way, isn't it, from, you know, my parents' generation where parenting wasn't even a word. It was just like, (laughs) keep you alive. (laughs) Job done. Job done. They did a good job of that. But now... I think one of the things I really want to get across is, you know, like we're always moving in and out of being functional and dysfunctional. There's no such thing as a perfect family. And that being good enough, given the pressure that we're in, is really, really, really good. I think it's really interesting what you just said about the idea of we move in and out of kind of function and dysfunction, because I think that's the biggest shock as a parent and also as a as a child of as you grow older and as circumstances change so you know for example when you become a parent for the first time you suddenly reevaluate your relationship with your parents automatically because you exactly like you said you want to discard or take in or you see that you behave in ways that are like them even though you might not have wanted to and then again when your child reaches certain Uh, or children around you, to be more inclusive, reach sort of stages that you remember as being traumatic for yourself, you again start reliving those experiences, don't you? So it's very reassuring to read the book because it, one, you cover all different shaped families and again, you very cross-generational, intergenerational as well because there is no one successful shape and it doesn't stay the same. And so, you know, we have to keep adapting and we have to keep... I don't want to say on alert because then that is sort of, but, you know, we have to be flexible in our thinking. Open. Open. (laughs) That's what they say. That's what we have to stay open. But it's true. It does. Just when you think you've got it right, it all goes, it all goes in another direction. Just when you think it can't get any worse, it's, you know, it gets better. And, And I think that's true. It's a reminder that we should bank the wins. When it goes well, it's okay to go, that was a good conversation. You know, or if there's a child, that was a good bedtime. Or, yeah, you know, yeah that, to, to go that granular yeah. with it because, you know... You because mean, we are crippled by our own future-proofing attempt to be like, if I can just do this, then in 15 years' time, we'll all be OK. Yeah, exactly. But also because 
I mean, if the pandemic has taught us anything and, you know, this new crisis is that, you know, when our external circumstances change through no fault of our own, everybody responds differently, no matter how. So you've got... In unforeseen ways. Yes, exactly. So you, I'm sure we've got loads of listeners whose parents are behaving in one particular way that is so, like, against type and everybody's sitting there going, but why won't they go out or why won't they have us over or what? I mean, there's about a million different ways that things can play out. Ditto, you know, having young people in your life or whatever. Anyway. That's what I really, when you asked me the question, what did I hope from the book, is that that people will read the book and find for themselves, although the stories may be very different from their own, they will recognise themselves because the most personal is the most universal. And that, you know, families have never been under as much pressure or, you know, maybe not since the Second World War as they're under now. So we need to be both self-compassionate and kind to ourselves, recognise it's a really difficult time. And also that we, you know, where we love most, we hate most and make our deepest mistakes and kind of cost ourselves. So hearing other people's stories where there have been mistakes and injuries, you know, never intentionally or even intentionally. One of my other key messages is, you know, to fight productively and that we have this thing of repair and rupture and repair that you are going to have, you know, at the moment, there, you know, last year there were more fights about what you do at Christmas. Like I heard so many stories about grandparents saying, come anyway, or grandparents saying, don't come near me. Or my, why is my mother going out and meeting people? She's like 85 um, and she could die. And she's saying, I'm 85, I could die. Of course I'm going. <laughs> I've only got a couple of Christmases left. Yeah. yeah. You know, so there have been so many, as you say, how we respond to threat can be and cause enormous conflict in families. And, you know, we've had Brexit where different people have it. You know, all of these different conflicts. And it's about recognising that we can have a different view, have a fight. But the key thing, I mean, what one of the things that causes real dysfunction in families is fights that have never been repaired, so that one fight builds on another fight. So you have this, like, what Ivo called this laundry list that gets thrown up every time. But if you can kind of step back and then talk about the fight afterwards and find a way of coming together and agreeing your differences, but knowing that fundamentally your intention is to respect and love and, you know, that hold together and not do, as you talked about, this blaming and you're wrong and I'm right and it's your fault. And, you know, because that is just absolute fast track to fracture. Hmm. It's about finding a way to be yourself within your family as well, isn't it? And to be allowed to be yourself and giving yourself permission to be yourself and for you to let your children be themselves, like not put pressure on them to be this version of you that you never were or not to be the version of you because you don't want them to have the injuries, you know, that you had. And all of it comes from love. I know there's nothing worse than sort of, I mean, you know, my husband and I had quite sort of, dysfunctional sort of periods in our lives you know because of poor mental health and so as a result in our with our children we're both arming them you know supporting them through work that they can do but at the same time it's really obvious to me that we are also kind of inevitably like educating them towards it ah and it's like that terrible thing where you're like I trust you but I also know that I made mistakes and I don't want to make them I 
I trust you, but be fucking careful. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and it's like, this sort, of, this sort of thing, or, or you know, you've done something and that reminded me of something that I did at that age and this is what happened to me ultimately, so therefore I must try and protect you from it. And of course... People need to make mistakes and because that's how they learn to not do that thing again. Well, we but know that, but so you're difficult. always sort of thinking, you know, make mistakes, but just don't make them too mistaken. Yes, exactly. Because that would be bad. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. Please could your mistakes just be like tiny ones, just maths ones, just like... But I think part of it, as Julia said, is having faith that you're doing your best because no, no, I was about to say character, but no person no, in your book is trying to hurt anybody else. And there's some really extreme circumstances in there. Yeah. And I think, you know, at the back of the book, I do this thing called 12 Touchstones for Family Wellbeing, which in some ways speaks to what you're talking about, which is, that you know, the first one is compassion, is like being compassionate to yourself, forgive yourself for the bad day and know that you are going to make mistakes, but also looking at how do we communicate as a family? So how do we hold both your saying... I can see that you're doing this and I did that, but also holding I trust you because often it is holding two very what seemingly conflicted ways of being together and offering that to them. And the power dynamics, you know, you want collaborative power as a family, not top down, so that a child discovers their own voice and their own way of being themselves and that you can allow difference in a family. Often one of the things I've seen with many clients is that they were the one in their family who say wasn't sporty or was say gay or was say if which the others weren't or was different in some way was geeky or not social and so then that gave them a real kind of injury like I'm not as good as and that to allow all of these differences and through communication giving us everyone their place that they are loved however they are And one of the measures, actually, which I think is quite helpful, is if you think you've got a really... You can kind of feel the tension in your body and feel the tension in your family, is to kind of look at what you... Nothing is ideal, but you kind of count, have we had five positive interactions versus one negative? You sort of want to have more positive than negative. And so if you've been screaming at your kids for like five days and really only criticising them, that's quite a good like wake up. Like, OK, it's been I've been too negative. I've been screaming at them because I'm stressed out and frightened and I've had a horrible time and I hate my husband or I had a fight with somebody at work or whatever. And so that's quite a good just little click. Like, OK, so I need to kind of put that down, recognise that, acknowledge it say it and then make sure that we have a good family ritual that we have fun together we do something positive which builds the bonds in families and the memories that they can then trust that even when there are bad things then we go and have fun and that's what life is like is jumping in and out of the good and the bad isn't it it's never just all good or as annabelle you were saying all bad (laughs) (laughs) um i think that's also it's a measure of all sorts of things romance work families it's like ideally you want the good to outweigh the bad because the bad will happen but not to just just completely fall into it. And we could talk about this all day because families, right? Yeah. Um, but so all I, all I will say is read the book, uh, Every Family Has a Story, How We Inherit Love and Loss by Julia Samuel out on March the 17th. And thank you so much to our friend Julia Samuel for coming and sharing more of your golden wisdom with us. Yeah, thanks, Julia. That was such a pleasure. Lovely talking to you. You've been listening to Annabelle Rivkin and Emily McMeekin of The Middle. 
Our book, I'm Absolutely Fine, is out now. If you like what you hear, please rate, review and subscribe. This podcast was bravely brought to you by Pension B. Pension planning without the pain.